Welcome to Autism in the Adult podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Teresa Regan, an adult neuropsychologist. I specialize in brain behavior relationships for those 14 and older. I'm the parent of an amazing teen on the autism spectrum and a certified autism specialist. I am deeply grateful to bring validation, hope, and purpose to individuals and their families living on the autism spectrum. With this mission at its core, I founded and currently direct the OSF Healthcare Adult Diagnostic Autism Center in Central Illinois. My books include Understanding Autism in Adults and Aging Adults and Understanding Autistic Behaviors. For more information and to join my online community for free, visit www.adultandgeriatricautism.com. Please join me in helping individuals, couples, and families thrive while living life on the autism spectrum. Good day, everyone. This is Dr. Teresa Regan joining you for the podcast today on Autism in the Adult. I am happy to be back uh, with a new episode. I've had a lot of things going on to keep me busy in the interim. The second edition of my first book was published, The Understanding Autism in Adults and Aging Adults. I also had the opportunity to do a webinar for clinicians on autism in females. That was very rewarding. Thank you, everyone who participated. That was another uh, nice milestone for me to be able to connect with people in a variety of venues. Today's episode uh, was difficult to compile because the topic is so complex. And I've had several listener requests along the line of autism and relationships, whether those are family relationships in a household, whether those are friendships, partnerships, romantic relationships. And the Requested theme circles around this idea of how do we come together? How do we understand each other? How do we balance uh, what's going on in our relationship and support each other? And that's a really complex topic. And I hope that I can do justice to the topic today. And my goal is uh, to honor all the people that are pursuing good relationships uh, with this mixture of families who are neurotypical and neurodiverse or couples that are the same way. You know, we have this complexity of coming together, of supporting each other, of understanding each other. And I want to share some of my thoughts today Again, the complexity does make it daunting. And so I hope that I've carved out a few themes, at least to get us started in thinking about how to come together. So the first thing to understand, and actually in the interim from the last podcast, I've interacted with a lot of uh, people, both professionals and those in the community that really don't understand the most foundational thing, which is that autism is neurologic. This is 
um, a description of how the neurology is wired in a particular person as compared to another person. And when we talk about neurodiversity, we're talking about wiring that uh, statistically is less common in our population. We're not saying that it's um, wiring that's less valuable. We're not saying that there are not gifts and positives in that wiring, uh, but it's less common. And when people want to come together, sometimes relationships revolve around this question of, uh, oh, I want to be with you because you get me. Um, and so how can we come together if there's this diversity in how we're wired and what makes us tick? Um, and it's important to, to talk about that, to be community together, to be family together. How do we support that process? So to me, understanding that autism has a neurologic base is really important. Because if we interpret someone's behavior toward us as completely uh, volitional, like I have decided to interact with this person in a particular way because I care for them or because I don't care for them. If we believe that all of this is based on a decision of how to treat someone else, we interpret that very personally, um, and it can be wounding in a relationship. So, you know, if this person doesn't acknowledge my birthday and everyone else does, is that a personal rejection? So the first thing we're going to establish is that autism is neurologic, that the way that the individual on the spectrum expresses regard for someone or comes together to um, be in a relationship, a friendship, a partnership with someone, that may look different. Um, and to the extent that we understand it's a difference in neurology versus a personal uh, statement about whether someone wants to be close to us, that's, that's a really great place to start. This foundation that autism is neurologic. Let's talk about what that means. And to make it more clear, I am going to give a comparison with another physical um, issue. And so I'm going to talk about colorblindness, not because that's a perfect comparison, uh, but because it's relatively common. And I think that we can imagine um, how colorblindness might be confusing. So let's picture uh, little Johnny in kindergarten who is not doing his color identification well. And his teacher meets with the parents and says, well, you know, little Johnny can write his alphabet and he does these other things, but we really need to have him, quote, work on identifying colors. And the teacher says, I've explained to him why color identification is important in real life. And he agrees that it is important. And I've given him homework to study. So I really want him to work on studying these issues related to color identification. 
And picture little Johnny year after year having the same input to the parents that, oh, he's still not up to where his peers are in identifying colors. Now, I've talked to him over and over again about why he needs to do this. And so we can see that the teacher has been, um, you know, really repeating to Johnny where he's falling short. You're falling short and all of your peers are able to do this. And here you are acknowledging that you know it's important and yet you're not improving. That then can be interpreted as uh, this person's not trying. They're not fully engaging. Uh, they're just being non-compliant. And so perhaps then consequences are set up for Johnny because he can't join the soccer team now until he um, increases his grade in color identification. The reason I use that example is that we can see that if Johnny's colorblind, this whole process of repeatedly pointing out where he's falling short compared to his peers, educating him that it is important, understanding that he agrees, and then seeing that he's not improving, putting in consequences, all of that is not going to be helpful. And what it does, unfortunately, is that it sets up this cycle where Johnny's behavior is seen as noncompliant and it's frustrating to everyone around him. And he starts to feel devalued. He starts to feel um, that this is hopeless. Maybe he's not smart. Maybe he's not able to get it. And then he starts to say, well, I don't care about that anyway. So it's really important to know uh, when we're interpreting the meaning of someone's struggle, uh, if we interpret the meaning of the struggle to be they're not trying and they're not engaged, that's going to create this whole other psychological dynamic than if we say, wow, this is really just a tough area for this person based on how their body works. And we wish they could have some better color identification. It would make some things in their life easier. But repeatedly telling them they're falling short and giving them consequences, etc., really is not the way to go. So let's get back to the uh, manifestation of autistic characteristics where we have these difficulties with social engagement, with relationship interaction, uh, difficulties with flexible behaviors, going with the flow, adapting to change, sensory issues. And if our approach to understanding this person is to say, you know, we've told you you need to improve in these areas so many times, and yet you don't, uh, this proves to me how little you care about me and our relationship. Um, that's really going to be a relationship that has a lot of wounds in it, that has this pain based on a misunderstanding because um, we're missing that there's this neurologic piece. A lot of what we do in relationships, and rightly so, is we try to interpret the meaning of behaviors. And we're taught to do this at a young age because it's helpful in general. And 
the measuring stick that we're taught to use is, well, how would you feel if somebody did that to you? Or how would you want your friend to treat you? How would you demonstrate your love for someone else? And that this is a yardstick that helps us interpret what someone else's behavior means. And this is perfectly valid, although it's important to understand the limitations. Because even at the best of times, understanding what we might do or what we might want to have someone do uh, does not give us the entire picture. We can be wrong about someone's motives. We can be mistaken about what someone meant in a social interaction. And when there's this uh, coming together and these interactions with neurodiversity, it's even more confusing and we can be wrong more of the time. So if I'm interacting with someone on the autism spectrum and we go back to the example of the birthday and everyone else that I consider myself near and dear to has wished me a happy birthday and this individual who perhaps I know or don't know to be neurodiverse, they have not acknowledged my special day. If I use that yardstick of what I would do in a friendship or what all my other friends have done to identify the meaning of this person's lack of uh, birthday wishes, then I will be very personally hurt. I will interpret that as a lack of commitment to the relationship and as a lack of regard for me as a person. Uh, when in reality, for someone with neurodiversity, this maybe uh, means something completely different. So if you ask them, would you want a friend to acknowledge your birthday? They very well may say, why would I want that? Or no, I, I really don't care about birthdays or I hate it when people send me stuff for my birthday. I just, it's just another day. It feels overwhelming. I just don't like it. So in the context of neurodiversity, we see that there is this falling short if we use the yardstick of what would I do, what would I want, or what do my friend, friends tend to do? Uh, so we have to then kind of add this layer of complexity and think about what would this person do? So this person that didn't wish me a happy birthday, what would they want on their birthday? I hadn't really thought about that because I assumed that we're wired the same. Now we are asked to engage in this higher complexity. What would this person want? What feels good to this person? And maybe that's how I can understand why they interact with me in a particular way. Let's move on to another layer of the topic. Let's say that the neurodiverse individual really does not feel comfortable with a lot of touch 
So they don't like hugs. They don't like handshakes. Um, And when they're sitting next to people in a group, they actually don't want to be the one on the couch in the middle of everybody. They'd like to be off to the side. Well, we could interpret this as meaning that the person does not feel warmth toward others. But if we understand the neurodiversity, we can interpret that this person's nervous system needs something different than mine does. And when he is sitting away from others, it actually has to do with the way his body processes touch inputs rather than whether he feels warmly toward the people in the room. So number one, I shift the meaning that I put on that behavioral pattern. Another layer of what we can do besides shifting meaning is we can let the person know how we interpret touch. So we can identify this individual uh, difference by saying, you know, in a relationship, I interpret touch as warm and comforting. So if you give me a hug because you haven't seen me for a long time, I interpret that as really being a sign that you missed me. Or if you give me um, a warm handshake uh, with both hands and you look me in the eyes and wish me a happy birthday, it, it contains a lot of warmth and I feel regarded. Um, so in talking to the other person with the neurodiversity about this, you can, you can state, I need to see warmth in our relationship in order to know that you regard me, that you care for me. And there can be this discussion about how that warmth could be expressed. So maybe the individual can't really um, modulate and change this amount of touch, but perhaps they realize that they could uh, bring home a flower from the garden to put in a vase uh, for breakfast, and that that conveys warmth to you. Um, So there can be some identification of what could convey this warmth, this regard for you as a person um, from their part. And then you can interpret the behavior based on how they want to express it. I can't give you a hug, but I've picked you this flower and I regard you. I love you. I want to be close to you. A third layer beyond this verbalizing of individual differences, this ability to say, what do you need in a close relationship and how is that different than what I need in a close relationship, is understanding fluency or flow. Um, Sometimes when I work with clients on increasing this expression of what the other person needs in a relationship, like asking, how are you doing or giving compliments, things that maybe the person wouldn't just uh, do if they didn't realize it was important to their partner. One um, response from the partner sometimes can be that they think that's fine, 
but the flow doesn't feel correct, that it doesn't seem to just be effortless in the relationship. And so someone's um, neurotypical partner might say, well, now it seems like he's over-efforting or he's over-complimenting me. And what I tend to do in that situation is to acknowledge that it's lovely if there's flow in a relationship like, oh, you get me, we think the same, this is effortless, you know when I need a compliment, you know when I need to be alone. Uh, That is lovely. But uh, even in the best relationships, that flow is not always there. That's just kind of part of real life relationships. And when you do have a couple with some differences in how they're wired and how they interact with the world, experience it, express themselves, you know, there does need to be the freedom to allow there to be some differences in flow. And so when she hears her husband compliment her, um, I would invite her to refrain from thinking, oh, again, he's complimenting, uh, to saying, this is my husband showing me regard. It's him. This is him loving me. It may not feel like what I need in the moment, but this is him putting effort in to express things that show me his love. And I appreciate that. I see what he's doing. I see where it's coming from. It may not flow the way I wanted to, but this is his expression, the effort that he's putting into the relationship. And we have to know that not all of our needs are going to be met by one person in a relationship. Um, It never is. There are always going to be things that we wish were different. We would wish for more of this or less of this. And that may be more true in relationships where people are wired a bit differently. Um, And so I encourage each person to get some of their needs met with other friendships with other relationships um, where they can get maybe more of the hugs or the uh, camaraderie that feels like it fills that nonverbal piece, for example. So uh, if a wife likes to do uh, bike riding with her best friend and they get to talk about life and uh, laugh and um, do things that fill her up, then all the more better, right? That we get certain things Uh, from other friendships. So ideally, we would get to the point where we say, you know, we're kind of wired a little differently in this relationship or in this household. And that's okay. It makes certain things challenging. And let's focus on what each person needs and how we can compromise, how we can make space for everyone to get what they need. What does not work as a good goal is having individuals in the household who are really frustrated and struggling because their goal is that everyone in the house should be wired the same. So if the goal is that this individual should be wired the same as I'm wired, then it's just going to create this long-standing frustration and tension rather than the honoring 
in the relationship that will bring things to a smoother flow. So we can't have a goal that the person is neurotypical in order for this relationship to work. Um, We need to be able to acknowledge how they're wired and how the, the other person is wired. To honor both of those ways of interacting and to acknowledge that they each have some difficulties and some ways that they clash and how can we get the needs of this couple met. So rather than taking the approach of the teacher with the colorblindness example where she kept reminding this Johnny where he's falling short, you're still not recognizing colors, you're still not doing that. Um, And then, oh, you're so behind, you're so different from other students. Uh, It's probably because you don't care enough. You're not working hard enough. So there's going to be consequences. You know, instead of taking that approach to people that we're in relationship with, let's take the approach of, I want to understand more what makes you tick. And I want to verbalize to you what makes me tick and how I interpret behavior and what I need. And let's figure out how to honor both of our systems and how we tick what we need and compromising that together. That's going to be a much more successful journey than the person who wants someone to work on something uh, in order to be neurotypical. I hope this podcast introduces some food for thought about how we're wired, how we come together, what the value is in expressing our individual differences and in honoring the neural complexity in our households. Thank you so much for joining me and I hope you come again next time.